Welcome back to Musings on Faith, a podcast from St. George Episcopal Church in the Villages, Florida. This month, our series focuses on getting to know the Episcopal Church. I am Marianne DeSantis, a parishioner at St. George, and your host. Today, I'm talking with the Reverend Peg Davis about the Book of Common Prayer, an important guide that Episcopalians use throughout our services. Deacon Pegg has been ministering to God's people for almost 40 years in a variety of roles, including as a board-certified chaplain in hospital and hospice settings. She was ordained as a vocational deacon in 2015 and is currently a postulate for the priesthood. She currently serves at St. George. Thank you, Deacon Pegg, for participating in our Getting to Know the Episcopal Church series. Please tell our listeners about the Book of Common Prayer and why it is so important to Episcopalians. Well, thank you, Marianne, and welcome to our listeners. At first glance, our Book of Common Prayer can seem like complicated prayer rather than common, and a scan of the table of contents can be quite daunting as it reveals that there is much more inside than groupings of prayers. The Book of Common Prayer, which we sometimes refer to as the BCP, is actually a comprehensive service book for clergy and laity throughout Anglican churches around the world. It unifies us to each other, and it shapes both how Anglicans worship and what we believe. The Book of Common Prayer has also shaped Christian worship in the English language for almost 500 years. Wow, that's amazing, 500 years. Can you tell us a little bit about who wrote it or who is thought to have written it? Certainly. Thomas Cranmer is the primary person responsible for its composition in 1549 and its revision in 1552. Thomas at the time was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Edward VI requested him to translate the older Latin rites into the language of the people and to adapt them for regular liturgical use. The ideal in doing so was to allow the people to more fully participate in the liturgy. During that time of Protestant reform, more changes were made in the context and ceremonies. Thus, a second book of Common Prayer was published in 1552. The BCP was truly a product of the English Reformation following the break from the Roman Church. There were three more editions released before 1662, but the Book of Common Prayer remained intact in England until the 20th century. Meanwhile, in the colonies, there was this little thing called the Revolutionary War happening. This political separation from England demanded a reorganization of the church in America, specifically rooting out allegiance to the king. Thus, the American prayer book was another Reformation product following our break from England. The Episcopal Church's glossary notes the family history of the Book of Common Prayer in the USA stating, Anglican liturgical piety has been rooted in the prayer book tradition since the publication of the first English prayer book in 1549. The first American Book of Common Prayer was ratified by the first general convention of the Episcopal Church in 1789. It was based on the proposed book of 1786 and the 1662 English Book of Common Prayer, as well as the Scottish Eucharistic Rite of 1764. The process of prayer book revision led to the publication of editions for the Episcopal Church in 1789, 1892, 1928, 
and 1979. Deacon Pad, you men mentioned Scotland. Why Scotland? The first Anglican bishop in the USA, Samuel Seabury, was consecrated in 1784 by Scottish bishops because the Church of England required its bishops to swear an oath of allegiance to the crown. Thus, the Scottish liturgy of Holy Communion influenced the American liturgy that was adopted in 1789. Thus, the Scottish influence remains in our American Book of Common Prayer to this day. Okay, very interesting. Well, why do we, as Episcopalians, use the Book of Common Prayer? Anglicanism has traditionally led to something called Lex Arande Lex Credenda which loosely means the law of prayer is the law of belief. In essence, words matter. When Christians gather to pray, the words that we use both reveal and shape our theology. That's a good reason for Anglicans to use and cherish the prayer book, and why we care deeply about any changes and revisions. In addition to providing order and unity to our Sunday liturgies, there are certain sections you'll come back to time and time again and others maybe only once in your lifetime. So unless you're clergy, you won't use the entirety of the Book of Common Prayer very often. But when you do look at the table of contents, um, you know, I've looked through it and I've seen written liturgies for almost every service, uh, you know, the morning prayer, daily office, uh, not only our Holy Eucharist, but also Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, life services too. I know I had an Episcopal wedding and the, uh, the, the whole service was in the Book of Common Prayer. So what, what can you tell us about that? Well, the object was to, com to make it so comprehensive that using the prayer book and the Bible, we've covered everything that, that a person needs to be rooted in the faith and truly understand it. Um, there are the services, we call them life services, the weddings and the funerals, ordination services for the bishop, the priest, and the deacon, celebrations of new ministries within our church and for churches. Also in the Book of Common Prayer is the whole liturgical calendar. So you might be wondering, why do we sometimes see green up? Why is there purple? Why is there blue? The different segments of the um, liturgical year are really outlined in the prayer book. Also, some very important documents, the catechism based on our Christian faith, the historical documents are contained right in the prayer book. So if you're wondering more about the depth of our church and how it came to be and what specifically we believe, the prayer book is your source. Okay. Is the Book of Common Prayer based on the Bible? I know I read uh, somewhere that approximately 70% of the BCP comes directly from the Bible. And I was wondering, uh, do you think that's accurate? I think it's very accurate. In fact, it might even be more than 70%. From its inception in 1549, the Book of Common Prayer has always been a text intertwined with the text of the Bible. Many of the prayers utilize phrases that have been extracted directly from scripture. Verses of the Bible are quoted directly, for example, the opening services in the daily office and the offertory sentences at the Eucharistic service. Whole passages of the Bible have been included as lessons in the epistle and the gospel readings for, this, for the readings of the year. Not to mention that we include the entire book of Psalms. 
Sunday Masses use a three-year cycle of readings, whereas daily Masses use a two-year cycle. It's been reported that the Sunday and weekday lectionaries contain approximately almost 14% of the Old Testament, not counting the Psalms, 55% of the non-gospel New Testament, and almost 90% of the Gospels. So throughout the year, in the, those three-year cycle, we've read just about the entire Bible. That's, that's amazing. Um, and also, I have noticed uh, that the, um, the Psalter does take up a, a significant portion in the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, why is that, that the whole Book of Psalms is inside the, the BCP? Well, our, our Book of Psalms is so beautiful. It's really liturgical poetry, and it was designed for the vocal congregational use. So remember, part of translating from the Latin rite to the English rite was to make the liturgies more interactive. So the Book of Common Prayer identifies several traditional methods, and especially using the Book of Psalms allows us to use the antiphonal resuscitation between the choir and the congregation, or the responsorial recitation, which is what we normally use at St. George, where the reader or the lector reads the first part of the verse, and then we respond with the rest of it. One of the, um, the well, I wanted to know about the differences between right one and right two. Is there a particular time or season when one is preferred over the other? Well, our Holy Eucharist is central to our Anglican heritage, and as a reminder of such, it's placed almost in the middle of the prayer book, which seems out of sequence for us, but again, keeping that central. So when we come for Eucharist, we note that if we're either using right one or right two. The traditional language rites are known as right one, and the contemporary language rites are known as right two. The 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which is what we use, presents the services and collects for the church year in both traditional and contemporary language. Rite one liturgies reflect the language and the piety of the Elizabethan era, or in Cramner's words, allow the words to wash over us and should be read slowly. And the first book of common prayer, although the structure of these liturgies also reflects the influence of modern liturgical scholarship. Right two liturgies reflect more fully the influence of the liturgical movement in contemporary theology. The liturgies tend to reflect greater sensitivity for inclusive language issues. The proper liturgies for special days, such as Ash Wednesday and Palm Sunday, pastoral offices, such as the celebration and blessing of a marriage, and the Episcopal services are printed in contemporary languages in the Book of Common Prayer. When these services are celebrated in the context of a Rite One Eucharist, the contemporary idiom may be conformed to the more traditional language. And although the structure of Rite One and Rite Two liturgies are essentially the same, the options and the requirements of the rites differ in certain respects. For example, the Rite One Eucharist requires the Collect for Purity in the Entrance Rite, but the colic for purity is often omitted in Rite 2. The prayer for the whole state of Christ's church and the world is presented as an option in Rite 1, but this prayer is not even included in Rite 2. The Book of Common Prayer also provides six forms for prayers of the people, which may be done in traditional or contemporary language. So it offers a variety for our folks. In, um, at St. Uh, George, 
you'll notice that we use our Write One service at, at our 8 o'clock, and our Saturday evening and our Sunday, later Sunday services are all done in Write Two. Thank you again, Marianne, for allowing me to speak briefly about the Book of Common Prayer. We could spend days, probably weeks, breaking it open and finding out more things. I hope, listeners, that you'll take some time to dig into the Book of Common Prayer a bit more. You'll find that it will be helpful to help you further engage in liturgy, deepen your understanding of the service, and also unite you more closely with other worshipers. You'll find more ways to focus your private meditation and bring you solace in time of need. For any time and at all times when you need strength to sustain you or words to express your joy and thanksgiving, please feel free to open your Book of Common Prayer. Or feel free also to contact any of us here at St. George and we'll be happy to walk you through it. Thank you, Deacon Peg, for your time today. This has been very enlightening. Listeners, please send your questions and comments to musingsonfaith at gmail.com. We will answer your questions on our website or in future podcasts. Thank you.